This is the Life Therapy with Zeta podcast. I'm Zeta. Hello and welcome to episode six of Conversations with Ourselves. Today I am in conversation with Vanessa Vallely, OBE. I remember from my years of working in fashion in New York, they used to say, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Vanessa is the most networked woman in the UK, reigns supreme in who she knows and what she knows. She is a woman with 25 years of success in the financial service industry. Year in, year out, she champions the career progress of thousands of women up and down the country. She is the champion of champions. Through her award-winning We Are The City with 120,000 women members. The moment Vanessa starts her day, amazing things start to happen. From tending to her much-loved dogs and her beautiful garden, through hard work and devotion, she has created a world that is wonderful, not just for herself, but for many other people too. What a beautiful world it is, filled with brilliant women of all ages, cultures and backgrounds. And she has, through gender networks, brought diversity leaders together to share their best practice. In June 2018, Vanessa was awarded the OBE. She is the author of Heels of Steel, Surviving and Thriving in the Corporate World, which is filled with hot tips on how to succeed in the workplace. Suffice to say, she is a highly accomplished and successful woman with a tremendous generosity of spirit and a warm and tender heart. It is fitting that she is the pearly queen of the City of London. As you can imagine, it was wonderful to sit with Vanessa and have a conversation, not just about the story behind the woman, but what inspires her, moves her. I was interested but not surprised to discover difference. So in this conversation, join us as Vanessa and I explore the meaning of difference, the value of difference, and the beauty of what difference brings into not just our personal lives and our working lives, but the greater good of all. Hi, Vanessa. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to Conversations with Ourselves. It's really, really lovely to have you here on this chilly winter day. Yes. Welcome. <laughs> so as we were kind of just discussing in our pre-bit, I was like, you know, so often I meet incredible women like you, not every day, <laughs> but given the amount of time I've been on this planet, I've met my fair share and it's really such a privilege to have you here you. for you to be so generous in giving your time and now I want to delve into your story I know you've written a wonderful book Heels of Steel which yeah. goes into your story and all of your incredible pursuits and achievements and accomplishments but I just thought it would be really nice to have you here talk about something that's dear to your heart that you've experienced through work or life. But let's start just to remind those who perhaps haven't read your book or who aren't in the business world who you are. Okay. 
Okay. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, so, who am I? It's a big question. It is. Because um, I think I've been multiple things in my life, but hopefully all of those different component parts have kind of made me who I am. So I'll start at the very beginning. Great. So um, I'm the daughter of two lovely parents, very mixed background. One side of my family are Jewish and the other side of mine are your typical Cockneys. Um, so from the East End, uh, so much so they are pearly kings and queens city of London and various other boroughs. So if you're not familiar with pearly kings and queens, have a look, look it up. But basically it's a very, uh, it's over a hundred years old London charity people that dress up in pearly buttons and raise money for those less fortunate. So so one side of my family very, very cockney, the other side of them quite Jewish in their way. So I grew up with my mum, very short-lived marriage, mum and dad. So mum ended up being a single parent um, who brought me up on her own. Dad was still in my life, but not a prominent feature kind of every day. So my mum ran her day job and we had about four cleaning jobs in the evening though. So she used to run kind of five jobs to make ends meet and I'd be the first to say this is no sub story I wouldn't go back and change a thing because she showed me from a very very young age that if you want something in life you have to work for it um so we used to do that and then at school I kind of checked out in my secondary school when I was about 14 there's other things going on things that I saw as more important but I always had this big dream to go and get a well-paid job and you know make life different for me and my mum so that she wouldn't have to work so hard and things like that but if anything I was not getting my head down to get the education that I needed to get that big job I thought I'd just get get I'd manage it somehow on a wing and a prayer um, which I kind of still, I did, <laughs> I kind of got it by accident. So didn't necessarily do that well in terms of GCSEs at school. I got a couple of Cs, but nothing to kind of write home about. And the irony was my worst grading was an F in technology, which ended up being my career. <laughs> so I left school at 16. I got on the bus from Hackney, went up to Liverpool Street, tried to get myself a job. But I was different. Um, and it wasn't a different from the perspective of my gender, colour of my skin, my religion, national, and anything like that. It was to do with my social and economic background. So invariably, people that went to work in banks didn't come out of Hackney, you know, or Dalston. They didn't have a wide Cockney accent. And the people that was getting jobs there invariably had a much bigger education than I had the kind of... Or privilege of having or a different education a different education but I had I was educated at school but also the school of life yeah so kind of growing up in Hackney taught me skills no university or college could have taught me and skills that really came into their own like later on in my career such as you know in that kind of scenario sometimes you have to have the ability to solve problems without money because you don't have that as a resource so for example in my banking career when the markets fell and we were trying to work out how we motivated thousands of staff when we were, you know, making redundancies, people were losing their jobs, there was no bonuses, there was, you know, the plants were getting taped away, you know, to make cost saves and things. How do you motivate staff with no money? Mm. So kind of my skills kind of came into their own and those innovative and disruptive ideas were listened to, whereas before yeah. it was always, this is how we've always done it and everyone went to the same school and that the same way. So their models were always the de facto, this is how we're going to deal with a problem. So that was quite, you know, again, another skill that kind of used. So I managed to get myself in a, a job, a bank that was taking in 
lots of graduates, but they took three from the local trouble school. That was me. And I was trouble. I lost that job after six months. And I lost it because there was a scenario that happened. And where I come from, if somebody demonstrates a behaviour that is not accepted, you tell them. So you call them out. But there's a way of doing that in the world of work that is with tact and diplomacy. And I lack that as a 16-year-old. So you just call someone out on their, on what you see is wrong. So I didn't so much get sacked. They just wanted to relocate me 200 miles to Leicester. <laughs> in hindsight, probably to a desk on my own. Um, but I kind of got the message that I didn't fit in. And sometimes you have to pick your battles. I knew that I was never going to have a long career. Kind of I was outnumbered. And, mm. um, so that difference kind of kicked in again. I kind of felt, and also a bit disappointed in myself that I'd given those individuals the reaction they expected of me, coming from Hackney, being, you know, that, that girl who kind of had a bit too much of an opinion. So I kind of realised that sometimes people are going to push my buttons and it was within my gift as to how I reacted. So, and that was a good lesson to learn in the kind of world of work. So from there, went to work in an IT company, learned to kind of keep my head down. Always two, two things about world of work. One other was watch people and how they react like leaders, how they deal with situations and replay them in my own head. And invariably when I was younger, replaying those scenarios would have ended up the same as losing my job in the bank. Um, they would have gone wrong. But as I got older and I watched more and I took what other people were doing, kind of made it my own model, yeah. the more I started to align with what I thought was good leadership. So I believe you can be a leader and exhibit those behaviours long before you run a team. So kind of that was my um, that was my mindset. So I jumped from there. Um, I learned my boss's job, kind of back to front, went and got her job in another organisation was there and I started to train people on Windows WordPerfect and really old application packages. And again, very male-dominated environment, the world of desktop support and kind of training at that particular point. But I never let my gender be a barrier. I never saw it as, why should I be any different to any of the guys? Like, I'm just going to do my job and do it well. So um, from that particular job, I ended up learning how to train people. I ended up saving the company quite a bit of money because I went paying out for trainers to come in and teach this stuff. And so eventually I'd really done myself out of a job because whereby I was booking people to come in and provide the training, I started providing it myself. So by the time kind of I'd finished, I'd trained everyone and there was nothing less to manage. So I took voluntary redundancy, which is about 5K, which is a lot of money to a girl that grew up in a tower block. You know, I shopped at Sainsbury's. Um, <laughs> and I set up my own company when I was about 21. I bought a company off the shelf, set up a training company. In hindsight, I had no business acumen whatsoever. You know, I used to, I was one asset of the company. I used to run up and down the country delivering various training sessions, not thinking I could send a trainer in Edinburgh to do the, the training session and make a 20% markup. I really could have sat there just farming out trainers, but I never had that kind of knowledge of running a business to do so. So I, um, I ran the business for probably the best part of a year and then I got a tax bill, which petrified me. Um, so I paid off the tax and run back to corporate, which is where I was doing a bit of training, a bit of technical support. Now we're coming up to kind of the year 2000 and you know the computers were going to blow up. So there was lots of opportunity to get involved in everything to do with tech to kind of prevent that happening, which we obviously know it didn't happen. Um, but I learned a lot as a consequence of that. So I went into a technical role and it was there at that organisation that I met someone very special to me. So there was 
I used to, there was a guy that used to come and fix the computers and we basically done the same job, I could fix my own computer. But I used to like seeing him. So I used to pull the leads out the back of the PC, lobby help desk call. And he'd come down and he'd kind of look at me as he plugged the PC back, the leads back in. And after about the sixth time in one week of him coming down, he's like, is there something you want to say to me? And I was a lot younger then, I was like, oh, there's something you want to say to me? Anyway, um, I married him and we celebrate 20 years of marriage this year. Wow. So but it's quite interesting because he and I had the same job in different companies for quite a while. And it was interesting watching how his career kind of accelerated at pace. And it had to do with the way that he worked. He would make time for networking. He would make time for strategically thinking about his career, whereas I was very much trapped doing the doing. I'm too busy for this. I'm busy. Make sure everyone knew that word was associated with Vanessa. I'm busy, you know. Um, but and, and this myth that someone was going to come and knock on my door and give me a pay rise and a big promotion because I was busy, whereas there is a lot more to it than that. Mm-hmm. So to roll a very, very long story short, I kind of jumped through various jobs. Um, my husband and I got married, had two kids, very short maternity leaves because that's what we needed to do as a dual-income family. Uh, went back into the world of tech, kind of into the world of finance as well, and that's when the financial crisis started to happen. So lots of banks were merging, investment managers were merging um, to survive, really. It was a very interesting time because you don't always see the best of companies when they merge, or the best of people, because people are fearful and, you know, people are trying to protect their areas, their fiefdoms, if you like. So that was kind of six years of my corporate career where there was lots of opportunities to put your hand up for work that no one else wanted, because most people voted with their feet and went somewhere where there was, it was secure. Whereas I kind of hung around these companies and seeing where it went, so ever the optimist. Um, but I learned a hell of a lot. But it was at that particular end of that period, I kind of started to feel like I needed more. And I think when you get to that, not just senior level, a certain age, that you feel like you should be giving back and you should be helping others. And although I'd done that from a charity perspective, quite a lot in my career, I felt it was my job to kind of nurture that future generation of talent and if I could find some other like-minded women, together we're stronger, right? So we could we could do that as a collective and that might be quite impactful. So set up We Are The City as a website for women looking for resources, really, to enhance their careers if they weren't getting that support internally, which there wasn't at the time because gender was not on the agenda at all. Built the website, run that off the side of my desk for seven years whilst I was at my jobs. My bosses all knew that I was running it. I never envisioned it would be a full-time job because I was trapped in that monetary circle that we get of having to earn a living and everything that goes with that, pensions, healthcare and the jobs that I was in. But eventually my purpose kind of got bigger than my need for those things. So it was a big risk. I left my job and I decided to focus on my other city full time. So I built out a suite of products that I thought could help companies attract, develop, retain female talent. I think at that time my other city had about 50,000 women as members. So now roll forward, uh, where are we, seven years? We are the city's 120,000 women. We look after 120 different organisations in terms of retaining, uh, developing and retaining female talent. I wear a different hat where I speak in lots of organisations. About 20 times a quarter, I would say. I'm always talking in some organisation. But we are the city to do lots of things, different two conferences a year, awards where we recognise rising talent under director level. Mm. So I'm looking at the pipeline of women. Gender networks, which brings together all the network leaders of different internal women's networks firms. So you might have a, a woman at HSBC, it's actually called Balance, but you might have a woman at Aon or these different women's groups within companies. We bring all the chairs and co-chairs together to share best practice. Um, we have a job board, 
Uh, we have a careers club. So we've got a product set. And now I have to say 120,000 women. So half of my time spent doing that. And then a third of my time spent speaking. And the rest of it is charitable schools, a couple of boards. So a big change from the world of corporate. But it's not been without its lessons learned. <laughs> I can imagine. Or its mistakes. And it's, <laughs> and it's such a beautiful arc because we're always in the journey of our life and our work experience kind of moving through these different phases yeah. as we grow and change and... There are so many questions from what you've said that I want to ask. So I just wanted to dive back actually to the beginning of the story, which yeah. was really touching to me, was to hear you talk about uh, the origins of your family. Yeah. And it reminded me of a conversation I had a long time ago, actually, with a very good friend of mine who's from Cockfosters and is Jewish. And we used to say, isn't it? Because, you know, I've got quite a fancy boarding school accent and she's all a bit, you know, yeah. So on and so forth. And I said, isn't it amazing how crazy it is that we don't really know the history of our country or even the city? And that Essex was an area where the Huguenots and then the yeah. Jews landed. And these were people who were migrating out of some really hardcore yeah. difficulties. But with them, they brought to England this great enterprising spirits, this grit and this determination and this ability to pull through and a, a, and a savvy for business. So even though there weren't the traditional models of a British education, there's so much there that can often get lost or yeah. overlooked because we tend to be culturally superficial and go, they don't speak right. Yes. And so I could hear in your story this exterior external presentation, even from your own mind, perhaps not matching the formula in the city, but the foundations of the city, capitalism itself was formed by outsiders, religious outsiders yeah. in this country. First the Quakers, of which, you know, I belong, but also with the Jews and their inspirations and their intellectual capacity. So yeah. when I heard you talk about, well, I didn't quite fit in at school, I tuned out. It's something I often hear amongst women who are exceptionally bright. The box of education, British, albeit yeah. rather good, doesn't suit those who are outside the spectrum, either because they are creatives or they are exceptionally bright. They look at this and they go, well, what is this? Yeah. Mine was more like that. My, my grandmother owned a couple of bookstores in Soho and she took over because my grandfather just come home one day and just dropped dead, he was 41. My mum was 11 and my nan had to pick up the business the next day and she knew nothing. She'd previously just been a housewife bringing up the kids and she picked up the business and she learned the ropes and she'd go out for every morning and set up her stall to sell her second-hand books. She was very stoic and I think I get kind of a lot of that from her but that whole kind of upbringing, I mean, we weren't naturally, I say, practising Jews or anything like that, but that whole kind of upbringing of being able to, strong women kind of feed, feed through, I think, our family. But again, it, that also taught me quite a lot, looking at that. So on both sides of it, I had the, the hackney, the cockneys who know how to make a pound note, who will do whatever it takes in the good sense, yeah. you know, to make ends meet. And then you've got this very strong work ethic, you know, on my on my maternal uh, grandmother's side. So, yeah, so there's quite a... There was a lot of influence around me, I would yeah. say, to succeed, even though we necessarily didn't have the resources. 
but it's it's not really not even the resources that shape or influence us. It's the stories that we are seeing and recording and go. Yeah. This is how you survive. This is how you build resilience. I mean, there seems a, a similarity in the story you tell of your grandmother going into this business and having to literally figure it out, yeah. and you doing the same later. These patterns are just wonderful to see how we can kind of come about or come to something in our own way. We figure out how to stay alive. She was a good role model. Yeah, but I think that I had a lot of strong role models around me even growing up, because although my mom was on her own, there was a lot of other women that were on our own. There was actually a family that lived next door to me, a Jamaican family. And rumour has it that it was the mum that actually delivered me in the hospital, she's a midwife. And um, I grew up, she used to help my mum out a lot. You yeah. know, my mum had to go to work, and she and me and Deanne, the, the lady lived next door, who I'd love to find, who I can't find. We spent a lot of time together as kids, but kind of, she was a big support network. And then there was another lady, Janice. It was like a four flats on the landing of the tower block. And Janice was with her partner, but then split up. And then Carol used to help her out. And so you had these like four corners of women, all with their own challenges, that kind of used to help each other out. Yeah. So again, I, I kind of grew up in an environment where women supported women. Yeah. Which seems as replayed itself back in absolutely in the work that I do. I don't see why it's not about that big strong sisterhood thing. Like it's, it's about the right thing to do. You should yeah. Help each other. Yeah. And I found it interesting when you were telling your story, you, you say at one point quite clearly, I didn't have this idea of me about myself as a woman not being able or being less than in any no. way, which I think is so important in terms of the mindset with which we walk into a door or an office or a building, what we carry about ourselves yeah. influences the outcomes that are created. Also, I think sometimes you're a little bit of a victim of time. And the way I always look at it, when we're born, at some point, whether it's eight months, nine months, a year, we have the confidence to get up on our feet and walk. Absolutely. We have the confidence to put things in our mouth and, you know, and to take them back out again. And, and we grow up fairly confident until that point where we trip over and then we think, oh, there are things in the world that could help hurt us. Yeah. So we make those little mistakes and bit by bit that confidence gets not sometimes. And I think... You know, I, I work with young girls in schools and stuff like that where they're very peachy keen about the world of work, which can be a tough place, and it certainly was, like, back in my tenure, but where that confidence is continuously not. Yeah. So eventually, if you use the kind of, you know, the example of getting up on your feet and walking, they don't do that anymore because their confidence has been knocked in so many ways. So, And I think sometimes, like, people talk about confidence in women. It depends on their story, as you say, how many times has their confidence been knocked so that they don't want to try for new things or they won't take a risk. But sometimes those confidence knocks can have the adverse effect they make you stronger. Yeah. Especially when people are telling you you can't do something. Yeah. Because of their perception or because of where you come from or your accent or yeah. you know, colour of your skin, religion, whatever it may be. You know, and even through my work, I meet two types of people. Some are positively motivated and some are negatively motivated. But we're all sort of a moving dial of both. But, you know, even for my work, it's so important for people to understand you're only born with two fears, which is fear of loud noises and fear of falling. Every other fear you have learned, which means you can unlearn it or return to a point in your thinking process before you learnt it. Yeah. 
it will never go away. You will know that it's there. But like you say, it can become actually like, you know, a peacock. My mum used to say those feathers were the swords of pain that they had swallowed. They become something beautiful that makes you shine bright and can stand proudly. So, I I mean, I'm wholeheartedly with you in that the more people can understand themselves and how they can overcome things. Oh, I've taken a punch here and I've taken a blow here and that hurt me. But like learning to walk, which is one of the hardest things to do up there with uh, talking, I can stand up and brush myself off and ask for help or say, I feel frightened or I feel scared and it's okay. And if I go from that place of owning my fear, someone will help me. But if I take that fear and turn it into anger, other things start to happen that are maybe not so productive. I think also in in my environment, in the world of banking, you never admitted your fears. It was up there with all the other taboo subjects you never talked about, your Mm. mental health and Mm. and things like that. So you wasn't allowed to be fearful. And as you, the nature of work that you do, but suppressing that emotion is not healthy. No. Well, I got to it because I've been in fashion for 30 years. And that kind of behaviour is tolerated because you're an artist. Oh, my God, they're batshit crazy. But what we're saying really is that (laughs) they are abusive in their behaviour and they cause great damage and harm. That's another industry that has its own set of mental health issues. But that's another conversation (laughs) for another day. And But that, for me, was inspirational. It's like, I'm part of this. Yeah. I'm doing it too. But how do we stop and make it different? And I think we're now in a time where there's starting to be a growing awareness that things have got to change and they yeah. start with self-awareness. I couldn't agree more. How we take ourselves out there into the world. <laughs> cool so we've got another hill to conquer Indeed. <laughs> i look forward to doing that and um the other thing the other point that you raised that i found very uh, interesting was you know we're in a very disruptive time at the moment particularly here in england america's got its own set of issues it seems to have taken us into this kind of negative spiral where it feels energetically the country's a bit static yeah and I'm there, but this is the time when ideas become valuable, you know, in that vacuum. The same you said when in business and the plants were being taken away and the business was falling away, people would listen to you because they were so desperate that ideas become valuable. And I think this is a great way to harness even the younger women and men or whatever come now with your ideas. I put an ad on LinkedIn the other day, bring them. Anything's going Anything's you know, game because we are quite right in an era of innovation and disruption. I mean, sometimes I see things and I think, God, who in a million years would have thought that things like that would even be a reality? Even when you look back at the internet, right? So over what twenty years ago or thirty years ago, whatever it is, was it twenty? I'm gonna have to check my facts on that. <laughs> um, but even um, even the internet, just the power that's given us for the good, but also for the bad. So I think. For me, the big focus is it's a really, really exciting time. You're quite right, everyone's idea is game. But it's the ethics around that. some of that. That's what frightens me because all of these things that will move the world forward also have the ability to do some pretty dangerous and scary things. So I think, you know, as much as innovation is great and I see where the world is going, 
there's some things that kind of scare me, like for example, the internet, fantastic information at our fingertips, finding things, business growth, whatever. There's a different side, it's cyberbullying, you know, the effect it's having on kids. We still don't know the long-term effect that social media and seeing perfection pushed down our throats that everything is going to have on our mental health over time. So is I think it's it's a very exciting time, but it's also a bit of a scary time as well. Yeah. I mean, I think from a systemic perspective, which is the work that I do, which is rather than looking at so localised, is going right out and looking at the bigger picture. And when we look at life, that you, you can't have wet without dry. You yeah. can't have darkness without light. And they are actually, even though it feels sometimes that they're not, they are always in some kind of balance. Yeah. And if we remove one completely... Let's yeah. say we take away all of the darkness and all of the negativity. We have no barometer for yeah, no, good. I agree. So it's one of those challenging things that we, what do we pay attention to? What do we focus and give energy to and therefore grow that? You know, you neglect a plant, it's going to die. Yeah. <laughs> the less attention we give to I'm the stuff. I'm that. intentionally. <laughs> How many plants. have you killed? Oh, God, loads. <laughs> and I've just, well, I've just moved house. I've just inherited a very nicely matured garden. And I'm looking at it thinking, is this our last year together? You know? Oh, no. I hope not. No, I'm They're sure. They're quite mature be- trees, so... You know, yeah, we should be fine. Yeah, I'm sure it will be fine. You'll get somebody I to help you. Yeah, I find it a very therapeutic place to spend my time. It is. Very grounding, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, I love my garden. It's completely new. It has nothing in it yet that I've been able to kill. <laughs> and the only bit that is kind of like a bit dusty, I've blamed on the boys for playing football. Yeah. Of course, it's their fault. (laughs) So I think these are some lovely themes that you started to bring up and it kind of goes back to what you're saying about difference. So what does, is it different to you? Yeah, difference is, when I reflect back to when I first started in the city, I was different. Mm. I felt different. Mm. And there's been a number of occasions throughout my early career where I felt that difference in the room. Mm. You know, I remember... I say I felt different when I joined the bank. My background was different, my accent was different. I remember going out for one of the banks I worked for and we'd been at an away day and they invited me out for the evening's dinner and it was in a really posh restaurant, a restaurant that I would never go to or haven't been before. And I was fretting about would there be more than one knife and fork there. I was fretting about the menu because would I understand what some of those things were and and I was a very plain eater at the time and would I show my background or where I was from because I didn't know what to choose and mm. you know so there was all these things so again I felt different right. you know so I soon got over it <laughs> um, but there were other times again although I never let my gender be a barrier there were times when I was in rooms with other people from different backgrounds or that were had additional skills again where I felt different. I've always felt like I think differently to the people around me. It's only now that the city and the people that work within it are becoming slightly, and I use the word slightly, more diverse that I've never felt more comfortable. Mm-hmm. And it's funny to see because all of the companies are looking for that diverse talent. And that's multiple strands. And that they're looking for them to come into the organisation because there's a realisation that 
if everyone looks and thinks the same, you'll get groupthink, right? And you'll always get the same answers to questions. So you do need that that challenge and that different perspective. And also, a lot of these firms are servicing a world that is diverse. So, you know, you can't have those. So it's really funny because now I talk to women that come to my speaking events or things that I'm at, and I detect a hint of Cockney accent or I detect something in their background that's similar to mine. And I don't feel so different mm. anymore, mm. you know. And that tells me that something's changing. Mm. And that, all right, it's not, it's 30 years ago for me, you know. So that kind of frustrates me that it's taken 30 years, not for me personally to see that difference, but to see, you know, that diversity coming, coming through. Mm. But it pleases me in a way yeah. that those people are there and that will encourage more to come. Mm. So, yeah, I see, I see a change. Whether or not I'll see the full change in my lifetime from a gender perspective, look at the World Economic Forum, they're saying like 120 years for gender parity. Every year that number, you know, it doesn't seem to move much. And I'm thinking, really? That's not even in my kids' lifetimes. And we're just talking about gender, you know? So, you know, so there are things that you think that you could wake up in the morning and go, why do I do what I do? I'm not going to see the results this in my lifetime, but we've all got to keep trying. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. It's interesting, this one on uh, gender parity, because it was one of the motivations why I chose to go live in Sweden, which has it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But after a year or so, you notice things and you're like, oh, that's kind of a bit strange. And you know yeah. it's because you come from a country that has different yeah. values. But in some way, it becomes more exaggerated, the polarisation between masculine and feminine yeah. in different places. Yeah. One of the things that struck me was even though there's equality in pay and status and the ability to apply for jobs, etc., it still gets split. You go to the centre of town, there's still all the men in the fancy restaurants and the women around the corner eating sandwiches and checking up on their kids. Yeah. So it's, I don't know what will really change it and if how is that possible what will that look like I guess we'll have to start imagining it first it's I mean I talk sometimes I talk to my kids and the things that I tell them like they can't get their head around the fact that women couldn't vote you know yeah. all those years ago they can't get their head around the fact that in some countries women can't drive you know they're they're growing up with all these kind of societal views if you like that the world looks so different to them Yes. And I think I say, in my, my mind's eye, I hope that that can only get better. Yeah. And they look back at some of the things, for example, you know, whether it's women in Parliament, whether it's, you know, women having um, equal pay, um, not equal pay, whether they're being 50-50 women in organisations and at senior levels, and laugh and go, oh my God, do you remember when, you know, we only used to have a couple of women? You know, like I look back on, like, Beat the Max video kind of thing, you know. So that, that you know, I hope that's in their lifetime. Yeah. And I hope that people, in all fairness, that companies like mine don't exist yeah. anymore because that is when we've reached parity. Yeah. Well, cheers to that, I say. <laughs> yeah. Cheers to doing myself out of a job. <laughs> it seems to be a pattern. And I can go work with, with the youth, which is where my passion definitely work is. Work with the well. youth. Yeah. That's I'm very, very, very passionate about, again, social mobility. Yeah. And opening up doors of opportunity to youngsters, and I don't say that with a throwaway, it's what I should say, you know, it's what I should be doing. It is a real deep-seated passion of mine because there are lots of people trying. I think at the moment I see it that 
there's lots of people throwing opportunities like at the schools and the schools don't because of the cuts don't have the resources to take the opportunity for someone like the organizations that want to go in and talk to the kids and widen their eyes about different you know job opportunities and stuff like that but the schools don't have enough teachers mm. to make those projects happen because they're so fine on resources which is down to our government but that's another story but you know it's like these kids are missing out on having their eyes widened as to what they could potentially be and the jobs they could potentially do so I want to kind of do something around that gap yeah and I think that that is really the place because the earlier you can start shaping and influencing by the time we get to I don't know, late 30s, 40s, going to yeah. be, there's not so much that you can change there. No, because no. But right. in that golden time, between 9 and 15, there's still the potential to shape and inspire the, yeah. the minds of young people. I mean, you know, there's always going to be that conflict of the need to belong to the tribe into which they were born being their family. Yeah. But, you know, if the families are also supported, then there's this openness to, yeah, here's a, you know, another way, another opportunity. Perhaps you have the skills to do something that mama and papa couldn't do. Yeah. So it's it really is, to me, feels like a collective community endeavour where all adults and children come together to just throw them out and go and see what catches. Yeah. I mean, mine was inadvertently a, a funny Italian lady who gave me a magazine. <laughs> it was an Italian magazine and it was all in Italian. And I remember seeing the word stylista. And I was like, oh, that's oh. a nice word. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, however many years later, that was an opportunity. And it is often summer conversation or something that, you know, sparks something in these kids who aren't interested in that. Because otherwise, you talk... I've done work with some really young kids, and you talk to them, what do you want to be? I want to be a policeman. I want to be a doctor. It's because it's the only professions they see around them. Yeah. You know, when I wanted to work in a bank, I didn't realise there were probably... 200 different job families you know within that bank there was marketing and legal I just wanted to hand out money and cash checks you know <laughs> that was kind of my vision of the bank so but it is it's getting in and giving exposure to these kids but then supporting them through that because again some of them will still turn up and feel different yes and the lack of role models that look like them that sound like them within these organizations too needs to be addressed yeah because otherwise they continue to go through feeling that little bit different so yeah. I think that there's lots of work to be done until the intake within our firms is from all people from all different backgrounds and they raise to the right four echelons of you know the organizations where they need to be and then then we change the game a little bit but a way to go amazing so tell me Vanessa what do you think it was that allowed you to overcome your feeling of being different I think it comes with age and maturity if mm. I'm honest you know, you have to reach a certain age where, A, you celebrate your difference. Yeah. And now I can because it's okay to have come from the East End. People find it quite intriguing. Yeah. Um, whereas before it was, I mean, you've got to remember that East End is a much different place now. You know, it's the place to live, right? Yeah. Um, not maybe so much. I loved it, but not so much when I lived there because it was always, you know, the negative stereotyping that goes on and, you know, crime ratings and things like that. So always had a bit of a kind of bad name, like lots of different pockets of London. So I think now it's okay to, as I say, to to be who you are and to be authentic. And I noticed that in a lot of organisations, they're encouraging people to bring their authentic selves to work. So why shouldn't I? 
Yeah. So again, I celebrate my difference and I encourage others to celebrate theirs because if anything, it's not, we're all made up of different component parts. Yeah. And that's what makes all of us unique. Absolutely. Well, that sounds like a wonderful place to bring this conversation to an end on celebrating difference. We've covered everything. We have covered everything. I was just about to say the difference is like making a really good soup. Yeah. It's got to have carrot, celery, a little yeah. bit of chicken, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. To make it good. So you're the wonderful part of the soup that brings so much to so many people and we will all be watching the space to see what you go on to do next oh, thank you. for sure and in gratitude for all the things that you have done to support so many women thank you. today so thank you for being here and sharing your story and yourself and your energy it's been really wonderful thank yeah. you Vanessa thank and uh, if people want to find out more about what you're doing or if there are some women listening and they haven't heard of we are the city what do they do so they can go on to wearethecity.com, yeah. completely free. Hopefully we'll inspire you with stories of women who have been there, seen it, done it. If you're looking for a UK-based network, somewhere to go and find your own tribe, be it by industry or by interest, we have a directory there. There's lots of events you can go to, so you can upskill. So there's no excuse if you're not getting that internally. Um, so you can check out our awards, our conferences, our different quarterly events. So wearethecity.com, and if you need to know more about me, VanessaValerie.com. Brilliant. And if you want to network, that's the place to find it all going on. Absolutely. Brilliant. Nothing great happens on your sofa. You've got to go out the door. Indeed. Thank you for joining us today on Conversations with Ourselves. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I enjoyed having it and sharing it with you. Please feel free to leave feedback and let us know what you think or share with us some of the conversations you are having with each other. Subscribe so that you can be first in line for the next episode with our next amazing woman. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye.